Thanks, man. Uh, it's uh, good to be here with you all this morning. My name is Ross. If I have not met you yet, I get to serve here as one of the pastors, family pastor, and I'm uh, excited to be in God's Word with you uh, this morning as we continue our series in the book of Psalms. So uh, this, this summer, what we're doing is, uh, is going through, over the course of eight weeks, looking at eight different Psalms or types of Psalms. As we see, the book of Psalms is a long book. It's the longest book in the Bible. And there's a, within the book of Psalms, there's a great deal of variety. Uh, and that's what makes the Psalms uh, such a powerful uh, book is because as it touches on so much variety in so many different areas of life, Christians for th- the last 2,000 years, for generations, have, have come to the book of Psalms uh, and, and have been able to draw encouragement, wisdom, a praise, words of how to express ourselves to God, no matter what we're facing, right? There's a great variety in the book of Psalms. And in particular, we see, we're going to be looking at eight different types of Psalms. So we, last week, Justin uh, 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 kicked us off. But, uh, in Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm, a, sh- a psalm that shows us how to live wisely before God. Today we'll look at royal psalms. There's also, well, then we'll look at con- psalms of confession, psalms of petition, that is making requests, psalms of lament or mourning, psalm of imprecatory psalms, psalms that call down curses on God's enemy, which is an is, is a interesting thing to do in the Bible. And then um, psalms of praise, and then psalms of Law. Okay, so those are the, the eight types of psalms that we'll be looking forward to, over, looking at over the, the eight weeks of this of this summer. All right, but uh, today we're, as I said, we're looking at royal psalms, royal psalms, and in particular, probably one of the best examples of a royal psalm uh, is Psalm two, which helps that it's right after Psalm one. And 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 Justin, as we saw last week, showed us some of the connections between Psalm one. And Psalm 2, but today we're going to dive in a little bit deeper into Psalm 2. But before we do that, let me pray for us uh, in our time uh, looking at God's Word as the family of God. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, we praise you because as we just sung, your Word is a tower of strength. So Lord, I pray that uh, this morning as we come to your word, you would bolster us by the power of your spirit uh, through your word. Bolster us not for our own ends, but bolster us for your glory. Would you strengthen us, equip us? Would you comfort us where we need to be comforted? Would you challenge and inspire us where we need to be challenged and inspired? And and even as we think about Father's Day, uh, we pray, Lord, that you would teach us what it means to come to your word as little children. You would teach us what it means to come to your word desperate and in need of a good Father who gives us all that we need. Would you supply that for us in your word this morning by the power of your spirit deep within Lord, I pray that you would change us in our seats. Make us more like your son. We commit this to you in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So... As an American, there are a few things in this world that don't make sense to me. And one of those things is the British royal family. Um, I, I, I honestly, I could tell you maybe a couple of people on the, on the screen. I don't know much about it. 
Uh, and it really what concerns me is not really that, like, that Britain has this celebrity family that's famous for being famous, but that uh, what concerns me is that, or not what concerns me, what intrigues me is how American culture and American society, is, American media, American, American tabloids, American social media platforms, they're, they're consumed by this royal family, right? Have you, I mean, I mean have, do, what do these people actually do? Right? Have you have you thought? Do they have, do the do these people have any real power or real authority or real responsibility? Right? We, I mean, I thought Britain was you know supposed to be a d democratic government or like governed by uh, by an elected parliament headed by a prime minister. Uh, d does Britain really even need any of these people? Right? I, I looked it up earlier. The, the the British royal family costs the people of Britain sixty nine. $69.2 million a year, okay? And that's, in a grand scheme of things, like a national budget, that's probably not that much money, but still, $69.2 million, that's a lot of money. And they just get their pictures taken and show up on, like, at major events and stuff like that. Now, if, uh, is it really worth it? Is, is the royal family really worth it? Or are they just, like so many people in our culture, just famous for being famous? There's no real weight, no real quality that makes them special, no real talent or ability. They're just famous for being famous. Now, some of you who are a lot smarter than me probably could give an answer, like defending them, why, 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 there should still be, why they should still be royalty. But the fact that we're even asking that question, that, that I'm even asking the question, uh, I, think, I think points to the monarchy's deficiency, right? So what's going on here? Why are we so obsessed with the royal family, why uh, wh why are why do I see the, the the pictures of these people every time I check out at Fred Meyer? Are we as a society just that obsessed about gossip and drama of rich people? I think that's part of the reason, but I think there's something even deeper going on as well, something even theological behind our fascination with the British royal family. The British royal family is. Uh, I, I think one of the last vestiges of a magnificent past and prosperous empire that once stretched the globe and then flooded a tiny island off the coast of Northern Europe with vast amounts of wealth, vast amounts of status, vast amounts of prosperity and, 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 um, and prosperity and peace, right? And I, I, there was a time in Britain's past when the monarchs actually meant something, when they were figures of great courage and leadership and, and ambition, right? Uh, and so w when, we, uh, when we venerate and honor this kind of... Uh, fantasy and uh, like impotent uh, power here, uh, what we're doing, I think, is clinging on to a fantasy of the past, a fantasy of, of a great king and great leaders who actually one day did lead an amazing, prosperous, peace-bringing, rich and bountiful empire and kingdom. And I think with the Bible would teach us, uh, I think the Bible would teach us to view our obsession with this celebrity family as evidence that people have been designed to flourish under a good king. 
And we long for that, even if it means we make up in our minds and, 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 and celebrate these people with, with, uh, with, in, in magazines and on, and on social media. Like we, We're clinging to something in, in the past. We cling to something in the future. That's why we hope to, for, for someone to, to be in the right, in, in, the, in office someday that can, that can someday lead us to prosperity and peace. And we, we cling to vestiges of a good king, and the idea and fantasy of a good king. And that's because good kings are worth celebrating. Good kings are worth uh, rejoicing over. And I think this is really one of the main ideas of all of Scripture, that good kings are worth celebrating. Uh, we, see it, we, see, uh, we see it run throughout and every, woven into every, the every passage of Scripture and and the grand story of Scripture as well, that we have been designed to flourish under a good king. And the Psalms, this is particularly true in the Psalms. That's not something we often think about when we think about the Psalms. We don't think about uh, the Psalms uh, emphasizing and highlighting a good king, but that's what they do. And in particularly, there are, there's a, the royal psalms that we're looking at today do this well. There's dozens of psalms that could fall into this category that emphasize and celebrate uh, uh, the reign of God, but this is, this is what they do. Royal psalms are those psalms that celebrate the sovereign reign of God through his chosen king. Royal psalms are those that celebrate the sovereign reign of God through his chosen king. That's the first blank. If you're following along in the handout, that's the first First blank. And one of the best representations of this idea in Scripture uh, that uh, is found in Psalm 2. These, these royal psalms are meant to orient the people of God and their hearts and their minds around the king who is worth celebrating. The royal psalms are meant to orient the hearts and the minds of the people of God, of God around the king who is worth celebrating. So let's jump into Psalm chapter 2. We're going to read this together. Uh, and then we're going to talk a little bit about how to read the Psalms generally. And then we'll walk through uh, Psalm, uh, Psalm 2 and uh, looking at a couple different things. Okay? So let's read Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2, starting in verse 1. <clears throat> David, this is, this is written by David. David says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is kindled quickly. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
Many people find the, the, the Psalms to be one of their favorite books of the Bible. All right, there's beautiful poetry in the Psalm. There's, uh, of, there's beautiful poetry in the book of Psalms as a whole. Uh, it's deeply, it can be deeply encouraging and comforting. Yet, at the same time, and I don't think I'm alone in saying this, uh, the Psalms can also be very difficult to read on, on our own. Have you ever had the problem? Maybe you had this problem while we were reading Psalm 2. I'm reading a Psalm and thinking like, what in the heck does this have to do with me? Like, I, um, I cannot relate to this at all. Uh, the, the actual experiences of David or the other writers can, that, they, that they describe can feel really foreign to us and, and un, irrelevant. So, so for example, uh, probably the most popular psalm in our culture is Psalm 23, or probably the most famous passages in all of Scripture, but Psalm 23, and it starts off this way. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. That's deeply comforting, encouraging. A lot of people cling to that. But then skip down a few verses to verse 5 of of Psalm 23. It says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Okay, that's a little bit harder to relate with, right? I'm not really sure how that line applies to me. Right? God has never prepared a table of food for me to eat in front of my enemies. Has he, has he done that for, for any of you? Like, and I've never even really had the desire for God to do that. I've never asked God, please would you make a table of food for me to eat in front of my enemies. That's completely irrelevant to my life and completely uh, unrelatable. Right? If you're like me, uh, when, you, when, when we come across a psalm like this, or a verse in the Psalms like that, and we, 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 we read something, oh man, that really stands out to me, love that, nah, don't really know what that means, skip that, we, and move on and try to find something else that we relate with, right? So, so what we do is we end up skipping, just skipping over and ignoring the passages that we don't understand or that are not relatable to us. So we treat the Psalms like a bowl of trail mix, right? We, we look through the, all the almonds and the cashews, I don't even know healthy food, so I can't even say them, but, and we go right for the M&Ms and the, and the raisins, right? Because um, that's what we want, right? We, uh, and, and so, we, w- but when we do this, when we do this, when we read a psalm and we clack, latch on to the things that we like and just kind of totally ignore the things that we don't understand, which is totally understandable, but when we do this, it, we, what we end up doing is just reading the psalms for what we want them to say rather than reading the psalms for what they actually mean and what, we actually, what they actually uh, 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 need, need them to say to us. Right? So here's one of the problems that we have when we read the Psalms. We often think we can make a direct transfer from David's life right into our own life. So, uh, so that's a statue of King David like in the, from the Renaissance. So uh, if, you, if you, that didn't immediately stand out to you. Uh, so we, what we immediately do is uh, uh, read about David, read about Israel or something, and think we can immediately take whatever David's going through and whatever he says and, and then apply it right into our life, put it right into our own homes. In our, in our lives. And there is some truth to that. I'm not totally, like, there, there is a lot of promises or a lot of encouragement in the Psalms that we can grab onto and own personally. Uh, but it makes, when we, when we come at the Psalms with that mentality, it makes those difficult and seemingly irrelevant passages uh, of Scripture uh, almost impossible for, for, them to, for them to mean anything, okay? So, but instead of doing this, instead of take, taking, doing this direct transfer kind of mentality of reading the Psalms, we need to recognize that the Psalms, on the one hand, they're, they're, not, they're not about us at all. Like, your name doesn't appear in the book of Psalms anywhere. Uh, and, 
And secondly, they're not even ultimately about David. They're not even ultimately about the people of Israel uh, that, that some, or, or any of the other writers or any of the other people that, that, the, that the Psalms talk about. The Psalms instead point to something beyond themselves. And, and this is super important for us to understand if we're ever going to, to, uh, to understand the Psalms that seem irrelevant to our lives. So, instead of making a direct transfer from David into our lives uh, when we read the Psalms, we, we need to read the Psalms through three lenses, through three lenses. And this is something, we're going to walk through these three lenses uh, and use Psalm 2 as an example of these three lenses, but it's something that, that I found deeply encouraging for me to apply to any, any Psalm that I, that I read, okay? Uh, so, uh, three lenses, R- reading the Psalms through the right, right lenses. The first lens through which, we, through which we must read a Psalm is through the lens of the original context. And that's just a phrase that means we want to read the Psalms as they were originally intended as to describe the events that they were originally about. So if it's a Psalm about something David was going through, we want to understand what was David going through so that we can understand what it means, okay? Or if it's a Psalm, yeah. So, and then the second lens is the lens of Christ. The lens of Christ. So uh, as, we'll, as we'll see uh, in Psalm 2, the, the language of the Psalms spill over into, into, into someone beyond themselves. It spills over into a greater David, into something greater than, the, than, the, than, the, than Israel or the other circumstances that it, that it was describing. Okay, So we'll talk about what that means and how to do that later. And then the third lens is our, the lens of our response. How do we take, uh, granted, what we, what we see here about David and what we see here about the greater David or the true Israel... How do we take that and then what, do, what does that mean for our response to that? How do we live under the, the reign of the greater David? How do we live as the true Israel today? Okay, so that's the third lens. Okay, so let's take Psalm, Psalm chapter 2 and um, we're going to walk through Psalm chapter 2 and um, we're going to kind of do, do it this way. I realize this is a long introduction, and we're now just getting to Psalm 2, so don't worry. We're, we're, we're going to make progress through this. Um, we're going to look at Psalm 2 through these, each of these three different lenses, okay? So let's let Psalm 2 speak for itself. Uh, first lens, the lens of original context is what we called it. And, and originally, this is a psalm about ancient Israel's ancient king. This is a song describing ancient Israel's ancient king. Uh, this, word, uh, this psalm, as I said, it was written by David, who is the greatest king of Israel's history. Israel was a nation, basically existed from about 1000 BC to about, six or, or about 600 BC. So they existed for about 400 years as the nation. And David was the greatest king uh, that they had. He's also one of the most important, uh, uh, one of the most important figures in the entire uh, Bible, okay? But in order for us to understand these words of Psalm chapter 2, we have to understand the promise that God made to David at the very beginning of his reign, the very beginning of his reign when he first uh, became king and established his capital at Jerusalem, uh, which is the capital of the, the nation of Israel. And this is what he says in 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses, uh, we're going to read a few verses, but uh, we'll start with 8 and 9. This is God's word through a prophet called Nathan to David, this great, the greatest king of Israel's history. This is what he says. He says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my, tr- my servant David, 
Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the names of the, ones of, like the, names of the great ones of the earth. And then skipping down to verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure, uh, shall be established forever. Okay? So that's God's promise to David. Those are pretty incredible promises. The creator, God of the universe, chose David to be his representative ruler, his representative ruler uh, over, over Israel. And he was to lead them into the peace and the prosperity that God had always wanted his chosen nation covenant people to experience, okay, uh, ever since he lo- let, brought them out of slavery. And this uh, was um, a large, in large part accomplished through David. But at the beginning of David's reign, uh, the nation was really just struggling to exist. Uh, they were, uh, you can see the orange is the nation of Israel, and then every other tri- or every other area around them, 360 degrees, uh, you can see is, is um, territory ruled by their enemies. And so they were being harassed and oppressed constantly from, uh, from 360 degrees. Uh, and uh, when, when David first took over as, as king, this is the problem that he faced. By the end of David's reign, by the time that David is writing Psalm chapter 2, God had largely fulfilled a lot of these promises that he made in 2 Samuel 7 to David. David had won many victories in battle. He expanded their borders. You see in the second map that uh, all of those enemies are under now under uh, David's reign and under David's rule. And then the green area is the, the territory that was expanded under Solomon. So even greater expansion under David's son. And they were powerful and, and dominant in the region. God's anointed king had finally at the end of David's reign, brought the people of Israel into rest from their enemies. Okay? Uh, And that leads us back to the words of Psalm chapter 2. As you can imagine, the rulers and the kings of those conquered nations, those nations that uh, David had conquered, they chafed at the success of God's anointed king. They wanted to throw off the yoke of being ruled by a foreign power. And that's what we see really in verses 1 through 3 of Psalm Psalm chapter 2. We see an empty rebellion, the empty rebellion described, that the nations are raging, the nations are wanting to put off the yoke of David's uh, David's authority. Uh, But all all the revolts and all the rebellions that David would face during his reign, they would ultimately be... uh, they would all ultimately all prove to be failures. And, that's, and we see why in the next few verses. In verses 4 through 9, we see it's because... Why did these rebellions prove to be failures? Because David was an enthroned representative. That God himself was backing David. He, David didn't achieve success by himself. God had placed him on the throne in, in, in Zion. And this is not like a representative like the House of Representatives. This is like representative as David represented the God to the people and the people to God. Okay? He, uh, um, 
And, and David was anointed even as God's son. Did you see that in 2 Samuel 7? He's, he says that David's descendants would be, uh, that he would be a father to them and they would be a son to him. Uh, um, um, and as the son of God, God was using David to expand his reign on earth. And then so, from this place of power and authority in the last few verses, in verses 10 through 12, David addresses the kings that are trying to rebel uh, but it's proving futile, it's proving worth it. He addresses them directly. Uh, and we see David describe himself as an excellent refuge for those who had come under his reign. Okay? So that's lens number one. What, is, what does this psalm mean? How does this psalm uh, mean in its original context? Secondly, though, we have to see in Psalm 2 something more than David, a greater king. Uh, Tim Keller, he, he uses the, uh, the uh, he, he says that the language in this psalm is like a, a cup, like that you're filling with water. And on the one hand, uh, it, it's perfectly describing David, but, but um, the words can't contain all that the words are, all that David did. It, it spills over. It's like a, a, the banks of a river that that's floods over its bank. Okay, So this language spills over into something beyond itself. And specifically, it spills over in two ways that I want to point out. Firstly, this, we see Jesus in the titles that God's king is given. So God calls his king by certain names, and those are significant. Secondly, we see David or God describe his king, the, the extent of his king's reign in a couple ways, uh, or in, a, in, a, in one way that, that is important for us to, to look at. So, uh, firstly, notice what he calls uh, David uh, or in, in verse 2. He says, The kings of the earth set themselves against, set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That word anointed, that's a big word in the Bible. And anytime you come across the word anointed in Scripture, you want to underline, you want to, you want to know that something important is going on here. Because uh, it's the word, it's the, the Hebrew word there is Mashiach, okay? That's the word that we get that's translated as Messiah, okay? So, so you've probably heard that word before, Messiah, which the, the New Testament uses the word uh, or translates that word as Christ, Christos, Christ, which literally means God's chosen deliverer king. Okay, that's when we, so when we say the word Jesus Christ, like that's the title that's given to Jesus. So what we're literally saying is Jesus, God's chosen king. Okay, uh, and that's a, a translation of the word Mashiach, okay, which is the word right here. So, so clearly, in, on the, on, in one sense, David is the anointed Mashiach. He's the anointed Messiah. But but this language is more than anything that David would, would do because David is God's true anointed one. But then he also calls, uh, David, uh, God also calls David his son. Did you see that? Uh, in verse, uh, verse 5 he says, You are my son, today I have become your father. That's, that's strange language. And then he ends it, uh, he, he, uh, in, the, in verse 12 he says, uh, David refers to himself as God's son. Okay? Uh, and there was a sense, like we saw in 2 Samuel 7, that God promised that David would be God's son, that the descendants would be his, his sons. But then when Jesus comes along, we see the true son of God, who is one with the Father, who does everything the Father 
commands and, and, and does. And at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, we're told that he's baptized into the Jordan River by, by John the Baptist. And when he comes out of the river, uh, a voice bellows from heaven and says, you are my son, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. So, in a certain sense, it was true that David was God's son and David was God's anointed chosen king. But only in part. Jesus was the true, is the true anointed and the true son of God. Okay? So that's, there's the titles that kind of flow over, spill over into, into to beyond David. But, this, but we also see the extent of the, of the king's realm here also points us to Jesus. Look, at verses, look back at verses 8 and 9. He says, <clears throat> this, is, this is David telling us what, he, what God has told him. So he's relaying a conversation that he's had with God. He says, ask of me. So David is saying, God said, ask of me. So ask of God, and God will make the nations your heritage and, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So God promises David that his reign would extend to the ends of the earth, right? They would be his possession. They would be his heritage. And then he would rule them with firm authority, right? Well, as we said, David's reign, we said only, we saw, we see only stretched from like the Mediterranean to the Euphrates River, which was a lot of land, but it's just a tiny sliver in a tiny corner of the world, right? Instead, uh, so, so what do we make of that? Did David really, did God fulfill his promise to David? Did David really stretch, his reign stretch from the ends to the ends of the earth? Well, no. Instead, David's reign over his ancient neighbors uh, is a shadow of Jesus' reign over all humanity. And this is what the New Testament actually says that God is doing in Christ. Uh, after Christ's death, we're told that he rose from the dead and then he ascended to heaven and God has seated him on, his, on the throne in heaven as king. And, and this is how Paul puts it in, in Philippians 2. He says, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. That sounds a lot more like Psalm 2 than, than David's reign, right? This is a universal, perfect, just, fulfilled reign of God's chosen king over all humanity. And this reign, Jesus' reign, is not just, uh, uh, not just in heaven, right? It's not just in, in our imaginations, right? God, God has promised that Jesus will return and he will establish a, a little earthly Kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that he's going to return and, and he will reign until every enemy is brought into subjection to him, until every knee bows and every tongue confesses. All right, so this psalm is a, psalm about, a song about ancient Israel's ancient king. It's also a song about the greater king. The last lens that we need to look through this psalm is our response. We need to look at what, what does this mean? How do we live life under his gracious reign? How do we live life under the gracious reign of our king? Uh, because, and this is, this is important because you and I, 
more often than not, chafe against the reign of Christ in our lives. We don't, we don't, we, we, we don't really identify with, I think what we, our default is to identify with the good guy in the psalm, right? We want to like, uh, we want to be like David. We want to be like Jesus. Uh, but really, we identify with the rebellious kings of the earth, the rulers of the land, who want to throw off the restrictions, who want to throw off the boundaries that our king has established for us. I think this is what scripture actually teaches us. Uh, in fact, uh, in the book of Acts, uh, in the book of Acts, the, the New Testament church, the early church, the earliest church in Acts chapter 4, quotes this psalm and identifies with this psalm. Um, and this is what they say. Just a reminder of some, some context. This is really important for us to understand Acts chapter 4 uh, in light of Psalm, psalm chapter 2. But just for some context, in, context, in Acts chapter 4, <clears throat> what the early church has been expanding and growing rapidly. So this is just months after Jesus died, rose again, and then ascended to heaven. And then his, his disciples, his, those who had been following him, are preaching the gospel, but only in Jerusalem. So it's still in Jerusalem, but thousands of people have come to follow Jesus through the preaching of the disciples. Um, <clears throat> and uh, uh, a lot of people are, f- are following, me, following them. The church is, is growing. Uh, and then Peter and John are, uh, are arrested. Peter and John are two like, leaders in the church in Jerusalem. They're arrested. They're brought before the priestly council, uh, the Jewish priestly council, and they're interrogated. Uh, they're, they're, they stand trial before them, and basically Peter says, gives a defense. He says, look, uh, you killed Jesus, and, and through the death of Jesus, God has used your sin and your rebellion to uh, make a way to provide rescue and deliverance from the consequences of humanity's sin, okay? So they emphasize that Jesus has raised, has defeated the death that they, they subjected him to. And, but the council doesn't like this, so they, they, they really can't do anything about it. They can't like, force Peter and John to stop doing it because if they tried to do anything to Peter and John, the people would revolt because the people love Peter and John and they don't like the leaders. So what they do is they just kind of like sternly warn the Peter and John. They say, you better stop preaching the gospel or else. And, but there's nothing really they can do about it. So Peter and John leave the trial. They, and the first thing they do is go back to the church, the, the, the early church there, and they begin praying. They begin praying after, being, uh, after just being back from, uh, from being arrested. And this is what they pray, beginning in Acts chapter 4, verse 25. He says, they say, this. They end up quoting Psalm 2. They say, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot futile things? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers assemble together against the Lord and his Messiah and against his Messiah or anointed one. For, and, then, and then here's how they apply it to their, their situation. They say, For in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant David, Jesus. So you see what, see what they're doing is they're saying, this psalm isn't really about David, it's really about Jesus. And uh, the, the, the people that were rebelling uh, the, in, against David, it really is not about them, it's about the people that rebel against the reign of Christ. So they have assembled together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your, your hand and whatever your will had predestined to take place. 
Okay, so do you see here what the apostles and the early church was saying? Humanity's rebellion against our creator is so ingrained within us that we killed the one who was sent to die for us. We killed the king who died for us. And our sin and pride proved that deep within we as a human race, not just uh, as political enemies of David, but we as a human race chafe against the reign of God's enthroned representative and his enthroned king. Herod and Pontius Pilate uh, and the leaders of Israel, they typified this, but it runs thick within the bloodstream of each one of us. In other words, the rebellion of David's enemies shows us that all humanity's rebellion against God since Adam's fall. The rebellion of David's enemies shows us all humanity's rebellion against God since Adam's fall. And this is uh, a paradox of the gospel. That until you and I recognize that at our core we identify with the nations of the world of Psalm 2, that we... uh, that at our core we reject and hate and rebel against the reign of God, we can never humble ourselves against his rule. Until you and I recognize, until we come to see our true hatred of God, until we come to confess and admit and own our true hatred of God, we will never treat him as our king. Until we do see him, uh, we, we, we might treat him as a whole lot of other things. We might treat him as a good teacher, right? Uh, as a good consultant or as a good friend, as long as he's not asking us to yield and bow the knee. Right? Until we recognize our true hatred of God, we'll never see him as our king. So Christianity is not a religion who, of people who are okay with God. Right, who like, yeah, God's good with me, I'm good with God, right? Uh, Christianity is a religion for those who hate God and who want deep within us to fight against his rule. That's every Christian. But Christianity is also a religion that invites us to daily bend the knee to a greater king than we could ever make for ourselves and that we could ever be for ourselves. Because we want to throw off the limits and the boundaries that God as a good king and as a good father has set for us. We want to, uh, we, we chafe against the limits that he set for our sexuality. And so we twist and we bend uh, and we distort our sexuality on a computer screen or on our phones. We, we twist, we bend our, our, our sexuality by redrawing the boundary line to just whatever our hearts determine for ourselves as acceptable. We want to throw off the yoke of our king by, by using our free time however we see fit, however we govern and determining, determine to see fit. We, we, want to, we, we are obsessed with stewarding our finances and, and managing our money to make sure that our kingdom is comfortable and secure, right? This is 
a hatred of the reign of God. When we place our own kingdom and our own reign, our own uh, autonomy and our own independence above God's design. You know your heart just like mine. Our default is to think first of how I can use my resources, my money, my time, my, my, uh, my, uh, to, to resource the comfort and the leisure and the security of my own kingdom rather than the advancement of God's reign. Yet here's what we learn about King Jesus in Psalm 2. Contrary to what our flesh, our flesh uh, rises up in revolt saying Jesus can never be the good king that he promises to be. Jesus can, can never determine uh, what I would, uh, the best thing for me. Yet contrary to that, to that, his universal, eternal, and perfect reign is actually good news for rebels and God-haters like you and me. Look at how our king addresses his enemies in verses 10 through 12. Did you catch that earlier? He says, Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. It's no light thing to rebel and and hate the God who created you. Uh, uh, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. And this is how, this is the final word that he gives to us rebels. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. For those who wisely recognize Christ for who he is, he will become a perfect refuge. Even in the rage and the fury of our illogical wrestling against God, he offers the protection and the covering we desperately need that our sin has necessitated. And he offers this refuge with authority because he died for us. See, a good king uh, stands behind his people, or a bad king stands behind his people and drives and pushes and whips and prods them forward in order, uh, toward work and to, to, in order to pay for his indulgent lifestyle. A good king, a good leader, though, goes before his people. He does not, uh, he, he goes before his people. And Christ has gone before us into death, into the grave. And he invites us to lay aside our rights and our claim to authority and rule in our life. Whether you're here and you've been following Jesus for decades or you're here and you're not sure what you think of Jesus, this is the offer of the gospel to lay down your attempts to govern your life and to instead be welcomed in and reigned by the true king who is a perfect refuge. And as we lay aside our rebellion against our true king, we will find him not to be a taskmaster, but a servant who has gone before us into death. So we follow a king, we devote our lives to following a king who died for us, the king who is worth celebrating. And we follow the good king whom our hearts were made to long for and obey. Let me pray for us. Father, you reign. Teach us to confess our rebellion. Uh, even, Even the rebellion, Lord, I confess in my own heart. The rebellion that that demands uh, to set the boundaries and the limits 
and determine the good life. Lord, teach us to confess our hatred or rebellion of you, against you. And teach us even more so to find the life, the grace, the joy that's found in your gracious reign as our true king. Teach us to orient our hearts, our minds, our souls around the king who is worth celebrating. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.